The movie discussed on this episode of Multiple Sadness is rated or It contains adult language and discusses nudity and depictions of violence. This podcast should be listened to only at night. Thank you and have a nice day. to Multiple Sadness, a horrible podcast about horrible movies that are so bad they're good, but still mostly bad. (laughs) I am Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's episode, we will be visiting the world's most dangerous mall in this week's episode, Chopping Mall. They broke into the mall for the wildest all-night party of their lives. A dead meat. But you're never alone. In the chopping mall. What's that? Robot life. Chopping mall. We're shopping. Costs you an arm and a leg. Originally released in 1986, Chopping Mall was written by Jim Wynorski and Steve Mitchell. It was directed by Jim Wynorski. Jim was the director of such classics as Ghoulies 4, Piranaconda, Sharkensaw Women's Prison Massacre. <laughs> And the Bear Winch Project 2, Scared Topless. (laughs) I like him already. Uh, The first movie that Jim directed was The Lost Empire, and he brought some of his stars of that movie back for cameos in Chopping Mall. Along with co-writing Chopping Mall, Steve Mitchell also wrote four episodes of the G.I. Joe cartoon, one episode of the Transformers, and one episode of Jim, which was truly outrageous. This movie is appropriately rated R for violence, nudity, and adult language. It was produced by Julie Corman, who you may know is married to Roger Corman. So this is considered to be a Roger Corman production. Julie Corman, on her own, produced Saturday the 14th, which is a classic uh, uh, horror parody, let's say, and Night Call Nurses. Uh, According to IMDb, people who like Chopping Mall also like the films Terror Vision, Slaughter High, The Stuff, Street Trash, Deadly Spawn, and Night of the Comet. Well, I will agree with IMDb on this. I like uh, at least three of those movies, Slaughter High, The Stuff, um, Night of the Comet. There's a connection between that and this film that we will talk about very shortly as we get into the cast of Chopping Mall. You sure you know how to shoot that? Yeah. I saw Dirty Harry 24 times. 
the main characters, I guess you would say, uh, that are the, the primary protagonists in the film, there are eight of them. There are four couples. First of all, there is the married couple, which are Rick and Linda. We meet them early on. They run R&L Automotive. According to my calculations, provided we survive the night, of course, we're going to be in hock to this place for the next 85 years. How many tune-ups is that? Just a sec. Two million, nine hundred thousand, four hundred and thirty-one. Maybe we should raise our rates. And we see a little uh, magnet on the side of their truck that says, we've got away with wheels. <laughs> Just dumb. Uh, we also have uh, Greg and Susie. Mike and Leslie, and then we have the two nerds, uh, which are Ferdy, and, and which is the guy, Ferdy, and Allison. Look, Allison, in about an hour and a half, we bail this barbecue, and it's good times to the max. You've just got to show. Susie, you've got a one-track mind. I already told you. I don't know anybody. Yeah, but you will after tonight. That's what I'm afraid of. Hey, would I set you up with a slime dog or something? No way, babe. It, it is, is babe, babe, isn't it? it? Uh, a lot of the actors that played these roles were plucked from other horror movies of the time. We have Rick, uh, who was played by Russell Todd. He played Scott in Friday the 13th Part 2. Uh, Ferdy was played by Tony O'Dell. You may recognize him as Alan in the sitcom Head of the Class for 114 episodes. So this is where he got his uh, nerd training wheels is in this movie. Uh, and probably uh, the biggest star of this movie at the time was Allison, uh, who is played by Kelly Maroney. She was Cindy in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She was also in Slayground, uh, probably most well-known to horror fans as Samantha, the blonde in Night of the Comet. There's your Night of the Comet connection. She was also in Not of This Earth. Why do I have the feeling I'm going to regret this in the morning? Uh, in the opening of the movie, there's a few cameos, and one of those is Paul and Mary Bland. They are the restaurant owners inside the mall. They were the restaurant owners from the movie Eating Raul, <laughs> which is a, kind of a, uh, a funny uh, horror-slash-comedy film. Uh, and so we have Paul Bartell, who played Paul Bland. He passed away, unfortunately, in the year 2000. And Mary Waranov, yes, as Mary Bland. Um, you may know Mary as I knew her from Calamity Jane in the original Death Race 2000. Uh, she was also in Silent Night, Bloody Night. She was Abby in The Devil's Rejects. And most recently, she was... Uh, she played House Mother in Attack of the 50-Foot Cheerleader, which is on Netflix, I just noticed. Uh, if you have not seen Eating Raul, that is a, uh, a funny uh, movie you should track down. It's uh, restaurant owners that uh, find out they can kill people and, uh, and finance their restaurant. It's kind of fun. Uh, also, let's see, some other cameos in the movie. We have uh, Garrett Graham, uh, who I know from Chud. Uh, he was in Used Cars and one of my favorite movies uh, and maybe one uh, that I may or may not cover on this show. Uh, but he was Rod Rodzinski in The Creature Wasn't Nice, uh, also known as Naked Space. And the only reason I wouldn't cover that is because uh, my friend Doug McCoy, who does a similar podcast called Crazy Creepy Cool Movies, 
which I will plug at the end of this show as well, uh, has already covered that. And he pretty much covered everything that I would ever cover in that movie. So if you, uh, if you want to hear more about that, go check out, uh, crazy, creepy, cool movies. Uh, we have Dick Miller as the janitor and he is credited as playing, uh, Walter Paisley. Walter Paisley, uh, I believe was originally from bucket of blood. Uh, and he has played Walter Paisley in several different movies. Uh, and the original Terminator, he was the pawn shop clerk. You would know, uh, Dick Miller. He's a character actor that's done lots and lots of, of horror movies and lots of Roger Corman productions. Uh, he was in gremlins. Uh, I just saw him in uh, twilight zone, the movie. Uh, he was a Night of the creeps. He's been in a ton of movies. Uh, also we have, uh, another Roger Corman staple that is Mel Wells. He plays the cook that appears in the restaurant of this movie. He was in attack of the crab monsters, which is referenced a few times in chopping mall. He was in uh, the she beast and he was in the original little shop of horrors, which was also a Roger Corman production. Finally, starring in this movie, we have the protectors. The protectors are one Oh one series robots. Uh, and we will talk a little bit about uh, the protectors and how they are uh, being used inside the actual mall. I guess we could talk about that here. They uh, uh, are robots that are uh, uh, are being are they replacing uh, security guards in this California mall? They are controlled by a computer that sits up on the uh, the roof in a little building on the roof of the mall, and they are backed up by a generator. So uh, if anything happens, they can contact the police. The protectors are armed uh, with sleep darts, and they have lasers that were used for uh, sh- uh, being able to cut through debris, we are told. And they also have little pinchy claws uh, that apparently are good for uh, ripping people's necks open. Well, first of all, doctor, the protectors do not kill. I wonder if they kill cockroaches. They could probably be programmed to. Uh, we are told that they uh, only patrol the mall proper and not inside the stores. And there, like I said, there are three protectors, uh, protector one, two, and three, and they all look identical except for they have a little uh, number on them, uh, which I'm sure was interchangeable <laughs> so that they only had to build uh, one really good working robot for the film. So here is my dramatic plot summary of Chopping Mall. A local mall has just installed three protector security robots to patrol the building after hours. The robots are controlled by a computer on the roof, which is connected to a generator and managed by two technicians. One night, the roof is struck by lightning, causing the computer to malfunction and the robots to kill their technician overlords and begin dishing out the death penalty to anyone they come across inside the mall after hours. Coincidentally, this same evening... Eight teenagers have planned a slumber party inside one of the mall's stores, the Furniture King. Things go bad when the robots discover the teens and decide to immobilize them. Locked in the mall until the sun comes up, it's the teens' wits against the robots' lasers in this 1986 classic horror film, Chopping Mall. So how did I hear about this movie? Uh, I am sure we rented this movie. I remember the uh, cover of the tape very well. Uh, but also this movie got either HBO or Showtime play. Uh, so I know that it was on cable late at night as well as being a frequent renter <laughs> for us. So uh, I saw this movie a lot as a kid. 
My impressions and the details of the movie. Let's start with the title breakdown. The title of this movie is Chopping Mall. Well, first of all, there is no chopping that takes place in this movie at all. Um, the movie was originally titled Robot, and that was going to be an acronym, R-O-B-O-T, with periods in between them. Uh, but they did not come up with what Robot would stand for. So they changed the name to Killbots. And so this movie was uh, got a limited release as Killbots. And they could not get people to come watch this movie. And uh, so when they talked to test audiences, a lot of people thought that this movie, this was uh, released again in 1986, which was during the height of Transformers and GoBots. Uh, so a lot of people thought, oh, Killbots, it's going to be about uh, Transformers. So they had a hard time reaching their audience. So during a, uh, uh, a staff meeting, apparently somebody hollered out during the meeting, hey, why don't you name it Chopping Mall? And Roger Corman heard the comment and said, let's name it Chopping Mall. So uh, that's why this movie is called Chopping Mall. If you look at the cover of the uh, VHS, which is the the version of the artwork I'm most familiar with, it also appears and slightly modified on the uh, movie poster. You have a robotic hand. This is a hand that looks like almost like a metal gauntlet. Uh, holding a shopping bag, which is full of human parts. <laughs> On the top of the bag, you'll see a foot, uh, an ear, an eye, a nose. Uh, down at the bottom, there's a face and there's a hand. Obviously, the protectors have little pinchy claws, so they don't have hands that look like the one holding the bag. And there's not a bag in the movie, and they don't remove parts off of people. So there's really no part of the cover that has anything to do with the movie. Uh, but, uh, but there you go. That was uh, marketing in the eighties. Come up with a good uh, idea and paint it and see if that sells copies of it. And who cares if it has anything to do with the movie, uh, that's inside the plot of chopping mall. Basically I discussed that in, uh, uh my little dramatic plot reading. Uh, it is similar. It has been, uh, criticized for being a little too similar, uh, to a movie named Gog. GOG, which was released in 1954, and they have said, uh, the writer said they were inspired by that, and that is a, a similar movie in which killer robots, uh, I believe it's on a military complex, they they break loose and they wander around, uh, they go haywire and are killing people. So it's a, a similar, uh, similar premise, I guess you would say. Uh, I feel like this, the plot of this movie borrows very liberally from Short Circuit, uh, of course, instead of uh, turning the protectors into uh, you know fun-loving robots that need more input, <laughs> it turns these guys into killing machines. But you have robots uh, that drive around on tank treads. The design looks very similar uh, to the robots in Short Circuit. You have uh, the robots... Uh, going you know away from their programming after being hit by lightning, you have them firing lasers. So very very similar uh, all around, I guess I would say. The plot starts with five minutes of exposition, which is disguised as a uh, a meeting between the security team and all the store owners that are in the mall. So uh, it opens up with a short film where the protectors are uh, disabling a jewel thief, and then they take uh, questions and answers. So pretty much the entire plot is explained out to us, um, you know, that they're their protectors, where they can go, what their abilities are, uh, and what they'll be doing. I do like 
that um, at the end of the speech, we hear a couple of different quotes. The first one is, the system is absolutely foolproof. And then the next quote is, absolutely nothing can go wrong. Uh, and they say that uh, the protectors will make it the safest mall in the state. Well, first of all, this would make – this mall would be, if these things worked right, the safest mall in the universe. Um, uh, the uh, Not only have they installed the protectors, but they've installed what look like the blast doors uh, that we see in Star Wars on the Death Star. These are huge steel doors. Actually, they look like – the doors in war games that we see inside NORAD. Uh, so at night, these things close and I apparently cannot be opened. And then the protectors will roam the mall uh, looking for bad guys uh, to immobilize. We're not really uh, explained why this needs to be the safest mall on the planet, <laughs> but, um, but it is. Uh, so anyway, uh, we we have this combination of things in the plot where uh, the mall is locked down at night. Now, these kids, uh, I guess three of the guys, so three of the eight teens, but three of the four uh, guys work at a store at the mall called the Furniture King. And so their big plan is to have basically a lock-in slumber party. They're all going to bring their girlfriends uh, and they're going to sleep on the beds inside the Furniture King or the couches and watch TV. So everything that they need uh, you know, for a fun slumber party is right there inside the furniture king. When the protectors go haywire, uh, we have a couple of uh, our teens that wander out into their path and uh, get killed. <laughs> and uh, I will be talking later about all the deaths in this movie. Uh, but um, uh, once once they're killed, then we know basically what what's at stake, that the protectors will kill anyone that they can find in the mall. So, uh, the teens first, they want to try to escape, but there's no way out of the mall. So then their next plan is to get weapons and fight back. And this is, uh, leads to some really crazy stuff that basically what they do is they find these sporting goods, uh, slash, uh, hunting, I guess, store in the mall and just laying out on the cabinet are shotguns and shells and none of this stuff is locked up. So, uh, you know, they get, they get guns and, and they build, um, they get propane tanks that they, they're going to shoot, you know, to make explosives. One of them ought to heard that. Dead man could have heard that. Uh, meanwhile, the girls make Molotov cocktails. They take the gas cans that they find in the mall and they make Molotov cocktails. Now, I'm pretty sure that the gas cans at the mall don't have gas in them. <laughs> but for some reason, these do. And they make very good explosives. So they uh, so that's the first plan. Uh, at some point, there's a plan where they, they talk about getting to the computer system that's controlling everything and try to shut it down. But uh, that, that doesn't ever happen. Uh, <laughs> they don't make it to there. And in fact, that plot point just kind of gets dropped. Uh, somewhere along the way. But but basically the overall plot is uh, the kids are in the mall, the robots are after the kids, and the kids cannot escape the mall. So they're either going to have to fight back and destroy the robots or hide from the robots uh, until the sun comes up and the blast doors on the mall are opened and they are uh, able to escape. Let's go send those fuckers a Rambo Graham. Uh, costumes and props. Well, pretty much the costumes in this movie are 80s teenagers. And I keep calling them teenagers because they work at the mall, but they're probably, 
Uh, at one point, you know, one mentions that he had brought some beer. So they are probably young adults, something uh, old enough to work in a mall and be out of school, but uh, uh, young enough to still want to work at uh, the Furniture King at the mall. Um, so the costumes are pretty much uh, these 21-year-olds uh, in 80s clothing. It would not surprise me if they all brought their own <laughs> wardrobe. They just wore whatever they had on. Uh, as far as props go... There are lots of guns, uh, so I think that would would be probably a big thing. And then plus all the things you see in the mall. Uh, And then we have the protectors, which had to have been the biggest prop of all. Uh, They are completely practical. They're not CGI. There's not anything like that. Of course, this was the the mid-'80s, so they had to build working robots. And there were many tricks. Uh, I've watched this film several times, and I've read lots about this film. So they had, you know, a stand-in arm to do this one close-up shot, and they had different things. And, and But they had at least one protector that was fully automated, that was remote control, could drive around and do all these things. Uh, so there's one one thing that bugs me about this movie is these guys are on, on tank treads. And uh, so, in, like, in one part of the movie, uh, when they drive over broken glass – it kind of slips a little bit. And then later on, there's a thing where we learn, uh, uh, I'm not going to spoil it yet, but, uh, things where the tank treads don't work on, but there are several shots of the robots going up and down escalators. And whenever they do it, they shoot right above where the tank treads are. So I, I guess what they're implying is that they would be able to do that. But if you look at the, the protectors in the movie, there's no way they could do that. And so they had to be on some sort of platform or something that they built uh, to move them up an escalator. That was a, <laughs> the only thing that bothered me. That was the only part that wasn't realistic in Chopping Mall. <laughs> uh, speaking of malls, this was shot in a working mall. It, the movie was shot in the Sherman Oaks Galleria in Sherman Oaks, California. This is the same mall. Uh, where Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Commando were shot. Uh, For shooting the movie, the movie crew was allowed access from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. So every day at 9 p.m., they went in and set up their cameras and their lights and their shots and moved everything in. They shot, you know, all night. And uh, in the morning when they were done, they had to clean everything up. Some of the stuff was moved out of the mall into uh, trailers, and some of the stuff was moved into uh, a couple of abandoned stores that they had access to. But everything had to be removed and ready for open the following morning by 9 a.m. Uh, on the commentary track of this movie on the DVD release, uh, which I own, which tells you something about where uh, how much I love uh, bad uh, B-movies. Uh, they they talk a little bit about some of the trouble they had with uh, one of the – the manager of the mall loved the idea of the movie and loved them being there. But there was a lady who was in charge of checking for, for damage uh, and anything that they had left behind. And so there are a lot of stories uh, about that. One of the areas that we see uh, inside the mall, one of the stores – we only see inside a couple of the stores. Um, but one is a restaurant where a couple of the girls work. And this restaurant, for some reason – uh, the inside walls are lined with movie posters of mostly horror movies, <laughs> which, uh, first of all, I would totally eat at that restaurant. I love that idea. You just don't see it that much these days. But there, uh, some of them are difficult to make out. If you have the, uh, the DVD release, you can pause it and kind of make out what some of them are. But what I've been able to gather, uh, there's a movie poster for uh, Galaxy of Terror. There's one for Forbidden World. There's one for the Slumber Party Massacre. 
Uh, and then The Lost Empire, which I mentioned was a Jim Wynorski's uh, first movie. Barbarian Queen, which is a uh, Roger Corman movie. And then there's also one. Uh, oh, the uh, other location is the uh, Furniture King. And uh, they, there's a poster there for screwballs. Uh, so there's lots of uh, little things to catch in the back, uh, you know, shots of this movie. The Furniture King was not a real store. And uh, according to the director, what they did was they went to the uh, um, uh, prop department, furniture department, and they just grabbed everything that they thought would be in a furniture store. So there's couches, there's lamps, there's pictures on the wall, everything, desks. Uh, so it was anything that they could use to just fill you know, this one particular set and make it look like a, uh, <laughs> a furniture store, uh, that was in the mall. And then somebody grabbed a, uh, a poster of screwballs apparently as well. Uh, they said that they made the, the shop look so realistic that, uh, sometimes during the day when they were in there working, people would come knock on the glass, trying to come in to shop at the furniture king, trying to buy things. So I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, as far as the direction and the editing of this movie go, I think it's pretty good. Um, there are a few lines that are delivered that sound a little hokey, and some of the writing uh, is is a little goofball. I thought this was an air conditioning duct. Looks like the heat's been turned on. In the middle of summer, they know we're in here. They're trying to French fry us. But for the most part... Uh, it, it's not bad. I mean, it's not like a, a B movie, uh, that you would see. And obviously Roger Corman, uh, and those guys know what they're doing, uh, by this time. So they don't spend too much time on the editing, but, uh, uh there's not like the really bad jumps and things that I mentioned that were in uh, microwave massacre. It, it's, um, it definitely has the feel of a major motion picture. You smell like pepperoni. Well, that's the way you feel. Wait a minute. What? I like pepperoni. <laughs> oh, in that case. A new section I've added here is uh, a bit of discussion about special effects and stunts. And there's a reason I added that to <laughs> uh, the podcast based on this episode. First of all, there's lots of rotoscoping, uh, which is where they go in and they draw actually on the film itself. And so it's like animation that appears on top of uh, the actual film, and um, uh, there's a, a point where the janitor at the beginning, uh, Walter Paisley, gets uh, electrocuted, and we see you know little flashes of his skeleton and stuff. Uh, also, the lasers that were done uh, that the uh, protectors shoot are rotoscoped in, and um, there's there's another electrocution <laughs> scene later, a different electrocution scene, and there's lots of electricity kind of, you know, sparks and things like that that are drawn on. So uh, it's fun. It's, it's not CGI that we're used to. You know, it's old school. I mean, this is a, a drive-in type movie, and it's that type of, of uh, graphics uh, and quality, and it fits. It totally fits. Uh, we have, uh, as far as stunts go, there's a stunt where, uh, someone dives from the upper levels of the mall down onto a, uh, a crash mat. In fact, they let, uh, the director, uh, Jim Wynorski try it first. And, uh, when he did it, he broke a rib, but he would not tell anybody because he didn't want anybody else to think it wasn't safe. And so then they <laughs> let the stunt people, uh, do the same thing. So there are several different falls. Uh, from upper levels, there's one where a protector throws somebody over a level. There's one where uh, 
uh, Kelly uh, falls from a, a railing she's holding on and she falls down. So there's a few different uh, falls like that. There's one really good slow burn. Uh, if you're familiar with that, where, you know, in the stunt people world where they set somebody on fire and they, they walk around or whatever. And apparently the, uh, the scene that as it was originally shot uh, went on for a long time and it was uh, so gruesome that the MPAA had them cut uh, several seconds out of the slow burn. But uh, so there is uh, some fire. There's a little bit of everything in Chopping Mall. Whatever you're looking for to buy at the mall, you'll find it at Chopping Mall. <laughs> and then we have the special effect that this movie may be most famous for. And we are so far into spoiler territory at this point. Um, but, uh, uh, one of the first deaths that we see, it's not even one of the first deaths. It is the one, two, three, four, fifth death that we see in the movie, but uh, the second one of the kids uh, inside the mall. Uh, Leslie gets shot in the head with a laser from one of the protectors. Now, the lasers uh, from the protectors don't seem to be particularly deadly. Uh, a lot of people get shot and it just leaves a burn mark. But apparently if you take a shot dead center, your head will explode. And this head explosion in this movie, uh, I would say it's as good as the one in Scanners. Uh, in fact, I think it's even better because the one in Scanners, uh, the guy's head explodes and the, and the skin kind of falls forward or whatever. Uh, and on this one, I mean, this baby explodes and you've got the other teens who are standing behind a glass window and of course, you know, head schlop all <laughs> explodes all over the, the glass. But, um, uh, and this is a really, for, especially for a cheap movie like this, it is a great effect. Um, and you'll get to see it twice because of the closing credits, they show headshots of, uh, not, uh, figuratively, not literally, of each of the actors, like pictures of them in the movie. And then uh, when they get to um, uh, Leslie's uh, credit, <laughs> they show it again. And then it just has her little headless torso there uh, with the actress's name across that. So lots of uh, uh, effective special effects and stunts in this movie. Uh, as far as the soundtrack goes, it is very uh, 80s horror. It's very keyboard heavy, and it's very good. It fits uh, uh, the feeling of the movie. There's a one radio-type song that is featured in the movie, and it is a song called Streetwalking. I believe it, it came from the movie Streetwalking, and there's probably a relationship between that and this movie, but I don't know what it is. Um, but there's a dance scene where the the kids are partying at the, the furniture king before things go terribly wrong. Uh, on the commentary track, it says that there was no music playing when they actually filmed the scene. So they are just dancing to, to no music. And later they went in and put this uh, street walking song in. Uh, interesting things in the closing credits. The uh, Sherman Oaks Galleria is thanked that the mall eventually uh, was damaged in uh, an earthquake and it was torn down and people in California may already know that. Um, but, uh, so this was totally filmed inside the Sherman Oaks Galleria. There is a thanks for unique product placement incorporated. I don't know what that company is, but that's very interesting, uh, that there's a whole company that just, all they do is do product placement in movies, unique product placement. There's a thank you for, uh, Ellis paints, uh, which is, uh, a, a store that a, a, basically the um, a climax of the movie takes place in. 
Uh, and then we get the, at the very end of the credits, we have a protector that rolls up and says, thank you. Have a nice day, uh, which is their uh, little catchphrase. You know, in the 80s, every killer, or every bad guy had to have some sort of catchphrase. And so each time the, the protectors uh, put somebody out of uh, service, that's what they say. Writing and acting. Uh, you know, there, there's a few quotes in this movie that are obviously hokey, and I think they're done to be hokey. Look, what if these things can read our minds? They're going to be awful mad when they get to me. Um, but as far as the way that they are delivered on screen, performed, everything is really good. Um, the the one There was one piece of dialogue that stuck out that I didn't like where uh, one of the guys, the protector sneaks up behind him and, and the guy says, damn, these things are silent. But the thing is, they're not silent. If you watch the movie, I mean, they have the, they make this noise of tank treads going the whole time and the metal clanging and their little choppers or whatever so there's actually another part where uh, one of the protectors sneaks up behind somebody which is completely impossible based on the whole rest of the movie so that that was really the only bit of dialogue that jumped out as not fitting but um anyway uh speaking of dialogue let's get on to my favorite top five quotes from the film number five do you hear anything unusual only my heartbeat number four What's that? Robot blood. Number three. Linda, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. I. It's all right. It's not you, Ferdy. I guess I'm just not used to being chased around a mall in the middle of the night by killer robots. Number two. There, you see? The system is absolutely foolproof. Trust me. Absolutely nothing can go wrong. Number one. Thank you. Have a nice day. And now it's time for the Killer Bees. Wait a minute. You must be the... That's right, gringo. The Killer Bees. The Killer Bees, of course, refers to blood, boobs, background blakes, B-movie tropes, and boggling questions. Uh, so first of all, let's talk about all the bloody bodies that appear in this movie. There are two operators. And by the way, maybe this is, maybe this isn't a plot hole. I don't know. But um, there's three protectors. So there's one protector for each level of the mall, one, two, and three. Uh, and they, I'm sure they want to cut down on cost. But there are two operators that come in that monitor the protectors. So if you had three security guards, you'd only be paying three people. But now you're paying two people to monitor the robots, plus whatever it costs to install, you know, uh, military grade blast doors and you know millionaire million dollar robots uh, with deadly lasers to patrol your mall. So it doesn't seem like uh, they're really saving any money for their system. But anyway, so the first two people that uh, get it in the movie are the operators. The first one gets killed while he is on shift. Uh, he is looking at a nude centerfold from a magazine, which, uh, again, on the commentary track, they said they couldn't afford the rights to Playboy. So one of the directors had his girlfriend pose for a, a nude photo. They took the picture and they printed it out so it looks like a centerfold. Uh, and, um, you know, in these type of movies, uh, if you uh, are – involved in any way in the nudity or the, the debauchery that's going on, you're the one that's going to get it. And so the operator gets a metal claw to the neck from one of the protectors. Uh, the other operator, which is uh, uh, Garrett, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he gets a, uh, a dart 
to the back. You know, we uh, we have these tranquilizer darts uh, that they have, and so he gets one of the darts. Then the protectors get out, and the first person they run into is Walter, the janitor. He is uh, mopping, and the protector knocks over a bucket of water and then shoots one of the darts and electrocutes uh, the water. And that's when we really learn that the protectors are not working uh, like they're supposed to. They're supposed to uh, not bother anyone who presents an ID badge, and they scan it. But they scan his badge uh, and then electrocute him anyway. So then uh, we get into our uh, teens, our perilous teens. First we have uh, Mike and Leslie who are making out in bed, uh, and Leslie has her top off, so uh, so we know that she's in for it, you know. Uh, so then uh, – but she wants cigarettes before, uh, which is another one. So Mike leaves to go get cigarettes for her from a uh, one of those little coin, uh, uh, like a a coin op machine or a, a vending machine inside the mall to get the cigarettes. Uh, so while he's doing that, uh, one of the protectors uh, shoots him with a tranquilizer dart, and then as he crumples to the floor, it rips his throat out. So that's how Mike gets it. And then we have Leslie, uh, who is running around the mall in her panties. Uh, and she's the one who gets the laser blast to the head, uh, which is by far the most uh, spectacular death in the film. Uh, then we have uh, uh, Susie. Uh, she is one of the ones who tries to take out the protectors with uh, a loaded gas can. And uh, her gas can is shot and explodes. And so she's the one that uh, gets it with the slow burn. Uh, we have Greg who gets thrown from the third floor by a protector. He, he, so he does a 30-foot fall. And that's how he goes. Uh, then we have <clears throat> um, Linda and Rick. So we're down to four people. We've got Linda, Rick, uh, Ferdy, and Allison. Uh, and so they come up with a plan to uh, set up a bunch of mall mannequins to confuse the protectors. Now, you don't really have to confuse the protectors because the protectors, which are A, robots, and B, shoot lasers, are worse shots than stormtroopers. They're worse shots than anybody in any film. How a robot, why would you make a robot that shoots lasers that's a bad shot? I don't even understand how you would do that. Um, but they come up with a plan where they're going to put mannequins up, and in the middle of the mannequins, they put a big mirror. So what happens is one of the protectors shoots the mirror and the laser bounces back off the mirror and hits the protector. I don't think that's how lasers work. I mean, not a regular laser like a laser pointer. I get it. You could point that at a mirror. But a laser that you would shoot as a weapon would bounce off a mirror and come back and, and hit yourself? I don't, eh, I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, but anyway, what happens is... Um, uh, when it does that, it kind of goes into like uh, the protector goes into like death blossom mode. If you've seen Last Starfighter, it just starts spinning around and randomly shooting razor, uh, lasers everywhere. And and, um, and I'm sure it could shoot razors, too. It does everything. And uh, so it shoots Linda in the gut. So she gets uh, a laser to the gut. Now, she doesn't explode. She just goes, oh, and falls over. Uh, and then um, Rick... Uh, is going to put an end to it by he jumps on a golf cart and drives it into the protector, but he gets electrocuted when that thing blows up. Uh, so at that point, you're down to two people. Uh, and then while we're discussing uh, body counts, let's go ahead and talk about the protect the uh, protectors. Number one uh, is set on fire, which they think it, they have destroyed it, but they haven't. It comes back. Uh, number two 
gets blown up in an elevator where they uh, do a giant explosion and drop the elevator all the way to the ground. Uh, Protector 3 is the one that shot itself by shooting a laser in a mirror and it reflecting back and destroying itself. And then he is eventually electrocuted when he uh, is run into with a golf cart. Uh, and then Protector 1, which is the one that they thought they had killed, but they haven't, uh, comes back. And it is destroyed by shooting a flare into a paint store, <laughs> which explodes in glorious fashion. I mean, it is a major, major uh, stunt and, and explosion. Good times with that one. Uh, that's all the bloody bodies. Let's talk about the boobs. <laughs> so I know that's what you're hanging out for. Uh, we actually see three different topless women in this movie. Uh, plus, uh, we get the pair that appears uh, in the print magazine. Uh, Roger Corman knows what teenage boys like. And uh, it was uh, said that he would go through the script and just make marks of anywhere where he thought he could uh, put a topless girl in. There's one scene where uh, the two girls are talking. They're like in a in the back of a store, and I guess they're supposed to be by a dressing room, and a topless girl just walks by. No reason. We don't know why she's there. They just thought, oh, it's a dressing room. We can put a topless girl back there. So uh, we have that. And um, then there are two, two of our uh, starlets at the slumber party take their tops off at different time. And you know what happens when you take your top off at the chopping mall? You're going to get a laser to the head or a pincher to the neck or something like that. But you're not going to make it through the movie. So uh, as far as um, they, they were always in the 80s, they were always teaching us about morality. Anybody in this movie who smokes or takes their top off or has sex, they get it from the protector. So remember that, kids. Uh, background blinks. Let's see. Well, first of all, we see um, some the the two nerds, Ferdy and Allison. They're watching Attack of the Crab Monsters on the television. Uh, and the Furniture King, while everyone else is making out, uh, Attack of the Crab Monsters is obviously a Roger Corman movie. And I mentioned that the Attack of the Crab Monsters poster is also in the restaurant. Um, in the scene where Dick Miller, uh, when he's uh, Walter Paisley, when he's mopping uh, and it's long after the, the mall has closed. If you look up on the top level of the mall in the background, you can see people coming and going. And apparently they were people that were in the mall's uh, movie theater and the movie had let out. So you could see some people walking around up there. That's a, a flub that, that made it through to the final one. Um, B movie tropes. There are a lot of those in this movie. And like I said, the first one is, uh, that sex kills. So if you're in a horror movie, you have sex, uh, you're going to die. And that is uh, carried to fruition in Choppy Mall for sure. Um, another trope, uh, the, the nerdy type guy, uh, at one point they pull him over to reprogram the elevator, which he does. Um, because basically, I mean, we don't really know why he's nerdy or what he does. Uh, he's going to college, I think, but I can tell you this, I've worked in it for 20 years. Uh, I, I got my first computer when I was seven years old and I can't reprogram an elevator. I don't even know that I would be able to open the panel <laughs> or what I'd be looking at when I open that up. But, uh, of course, uh, you know, anytime there's a nerd in any type of movie like this, they can obviously just reprogram anything. Uh, I mentioned the easily accessible weapons and bullets uh, in the mall. That seemed a little bit too convenient. Also, uh, there's a, a uh, one of those 
locks uh, that's guarding one of the, the shops in the mall, which they are able to just shoot with a revolver and blow the lock away. I don't know if that really works in real life. I seem to remember there was a uh, Mythbusters where they had tried that. And I mean, right off the bat, you'd have to be a pretty good shot anyway, uh, you know, from 10 feet away with a revolver to shoot a padlock, um, especially with robots coming, but, but they're able to do it. Uh, you have the trope that the protectors aren't able to hit anything with the lasers. Again, uh, this should not be difficult to program for, especially for million dollar robots. And if you don't have million dollar robots, I mean, let's just say that they bought the value version of the killer robot to protect their mall, then you don't arm it with lethal weapons. <laughs> if you say, you know, what's the drawback of this model? Well, it has lethal lasers that will explode heads, but it's not that good of a shot. It could shoot random other things. Okay. Well, don't buy that version. Um, I mentioned the shooting the laser into the mirror, bouncing back. I don't buy that. Um, also, I like um, this is a, a good trope that all three of the robots I noticed have different color lasers. One is kind of a, a pink, light red color. One shoots blue and one shoots green. So I thought it's convenient that each protector has a different color laser. It made me wonder what happened if you bought a fourth uh, or what if you bought 20? Would they all have different, like you'd have, you know, chartreuse and and uh, aquamarine or whatever lasers, or at some point do they repeat it? So I don't really know uh, how that works. Uh, we have the the trope where Ferdy fires his re- revolver, and it seemed like it was way more than six shots. Uh, I counted like eight or nine shots, which is um, a, you know a staple in horror movie. Um, but then when it's out of bullets, he just takes the the handgun and throws it at the robot, which I <laughs> I don't know why people do that in movies, but um, you know if you've shot a robot so many times and it didn't help. I don't think throwing a gun uh, will hurt it either. Uh, As I mentioned, there's a scene where one of the protectors sneaks up on a girl uh, and taps her on the back instead of killing her. This is always a downfall of bad guys in movies uh, when they have the opportunity to kill somebody. And instead of doing it, they just tap you on the shoulder and they go, surprise, you know, that sort of thing. And that gives the person a chance to escape, which is what happens uh, with Allison. She's able to get away. Uh, Allison, uh, speaking of Allison, she breaks into a pet store and she does this by, uh, starting about a foot away from a sheet of safety glass that would be used on the outside of a mall and leaning into it. And it shatters. Now I have actually tried to break windows before, uh, for various things, um, not anything malicious, just, you know, had the opportunity and it's pretty difficult to break even like a car window. And I could imagine it would be very difficult to break uh, a mall window. And I'm pretty sure a 100-pound woman cannot do it by starting a foot away and kind of leaning into it. And she appears on the other side of the shattered window completely uncut, um, which, again, is something I don't think that would happen. Uh, And then we have the trope of her being in the pet store and she has to hide and be silent from the robot. And of course the pets are out everywhere. So she gets a spider on her and there's a snake and some other things like that. So, uh, another thing in in horror movies, we saw that in Indiana Jones and the temple of doom and other things where people are forced to face, uh, uh, bugs and crawly things. And sometimes uh, having to be silent during that. Uh, and then finally the, uh, other trope that I, uh, wrote down was the robots having a catchphrase again that was a popular thing of that time where you know to sell everybody had to have a, a catchphrase and these robots uh, certainly have their own 
Finally, uh, under uh, Killer Bees, I have boggling questions. And uh, the biggest boggling question I had during this film was, I'm not sure how the protectors see. Um, I don't know if they use a computer. I don't I don't really understand. So uh, there's, there's, there was different theories I had. Obviously, you have the master computer on the roof, which is supposed to be controlling them. But the protectors are constantly uh, monitoring the wrong levels of the, the mall. So they don't have any, uh, I guess you would say, digital insight uh, or sensors as to where the people are hiding in the mall. So that's not it. Uh, people are able to hide nearby the robots and they drive by and don't see them. So it's not, they don't have any sort of heat vision. Uh, so I'm guessing it's just a normal camera or something. They do have really good hearing because whenever people scream or glass breaks, the robots, uh, pay attention to that and they go and, and, um, investigate. But uh, I wasn't really sure how they were seeing people. And it seemed like for something that cost millions of dollars and to be the safest mall in the country, that they would have some sort of system of tracking down, uh, movement or where people were. Uh, and then the other thing that boggled me was why this mall felt the need to add these protectors in the first place. Again, uh, I mean, we see them patrolling, you know, patrolling, um, uh, the pretzel store <laughs> and the furniture king and things like that, where it just doesn't seem like it would justify, uh, that, but that's, that's reading a little bit, uh, too much into the movie. How are we going to get in? Don't worry. I got the keys. My multiple sadness rating, how much do I enjoy this movie? This would not be a surprise if you've listened to this episode. I give it five exploding Leslie heads. I love this movie. I love it. I love it. Um, I will watch it anytime. If anybody wants to watch a bad horror movie, uh, we will sit down and we can watch Choppy Mall. I just uh, enjoy this movie so much. I like um, the fact uh, – I've always been attracted to movies where that take place like in real places, like real malls. Uh, and things like that, you know, especially after hours, I think anybody that's worked in a fast food place that goes in knows, uh, you know, before hours or is there after hours that they, those kind of places, or even like sometimes I'll go to work late at night to do something and, and you're the only person there and it's a little creepy, you know, when you're walking around. So, uh, uh, I always think, uh, so I really enjoyed, I guess the setting of the movie and you just think, you know, what would you do? Like if you were in a mall, uh, you know, and these robots were after you, like what stores would you go to? What would you do to survive? Uh, so I like all that stuff and the special effects are fun. The, the movie has uh, lots of uh, fun quotes and, and they just really have fun with it. So, um, and it's not presented like they're making fun of, uh, the movie. They're, they're just having a good time, uh, when they made it. For the closing credits, first of all, I want to thank the ACPN who has graciously added multiple sadness to their podcast network. So if you want to hear other great, great shows, uh, there's lots of great shows going all the way to Flux Capacitcast and Drunk on Disney and Venture Club Podcast, all lots and lots of great shows. So if you want to go check out those great podcasts, go check them out at theacpn.com. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. Also, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, if you like these types of movies, these old 80s and 90s kind of crazy movies, please go check out Doug McCoy's Crazy Creepy Cool Movies. Uh, you can find him on the Throwback Network, which is a great place for quality retro podcasts. And also, if you want to hear other shows that I'm working on right now, go check them out at robohara.com forward slash podcasts. With that, I will give you the final spoiler of the movie in just a moment.
With six of the eight teens down, Allison and Ferdy temporarily split up. Protector number one sneaks up on Allison and almost kills her, but is distracted by Ferdy, who shoots the protector and disables his laser. Ferdy runs out of bullets and throws a fire extinguisher at the robot. The robot, unaffected, throws it back and takes out Ferdy. This leads to the final standoff between Allison and Protector Number 1. Allison sets a trap in the Ellis paint store by pouring paint and paint thinner all over the ground and then drawing the Protector in. When it arrives, its tank tracks begin slipping in the paint. While disabled, Allison shoots a flare into the store, exploding it and the Protector. When she emerges victorious, we see that Ferdy has survived. Ferdy and Allison embrace, and we see the sun coming in the skylights as the night of horror inside the chopping mall comes to an end. Thank you. Have a nice day.